Book Nine, Chapter Four of Progress and Poverty by Henry George. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Four of the Changes that would be wrought in social organization and social life. We are dealing only with general principles. There are some matters of detail, such as those arising from the division of revenues between local and general governments, which upon application of these principles would come up, but these it is not necessary here to discuss. When once principles are settled, details will be readily adjusted. Nor without too much elaboration is it possible to notice all the changes which would be wrought, or would become possible, by a change which would readjust the very foundation of society, but to some main features let me call attention. Noticeable among these is the great simplicity which would become possible in government. To collect taxes, to prevent and punish evasions, to check and counter-check revenues drawn from so many distinct sources, now make up probably three-fourths, perhaps seven-eighths of the business of government, outside of the preservation of order, the maintenance of the military arm, and the administration of justice. An immense and complicated network of governmental machinery would thus be dispensed with. In the administration of justice there would be a like saving of strain. Much of the civil business of our courts arises from disputes as to ownership of land. These would cease when the state was virtually acknowledged as the sole owner of land, and all occupiers became practically rent-paying tenants. The growth of morality consequent upon the cessation of want would tend to a like diminution in other civil business of the courts, which could be hastened by the adoption of the common-sense proposition of Bentham to abolish all laws for the collection of debts and the enforcement of private contracts. The rise of wages, the opening of opportunities for all to make an easy and comfortable living, would at once lessen and would soon eliminate from society the thieves, swindlers, and other classes of criminals who spring from the unequal distribution of wealth. Thus the administration of the criminal law, with all its paraphernalia of policemen, detectives, prisons, and penitentiaries, would, like the administration of the civil law, cease to make such a drain upon the vital force and attention of society. We should get rid not only of many judges, bailiffs, clerks, and prison-keepers, but of the great host of lawyers who are now maintained at the expense of producers, and talent now wasted in legal subtleties would be turned to higher pursuits. The legislative, judicial, and executive functions of government would in this way be vastly simplified. Nor can I think that the public debts and the standing armies, which are historically the outgrowth of the change from feudal to allodial tenures, would long remain after the reversion to the old idea that the land of a country is the common right of the people of the country. The former could readily be paid off by a tax that would not lessen the wages of labour nor check production, and the latter, the growth of intelligence and independence among the masses, aided perhaps by the progress of invention, which is revolutionizing the military art, must soon cause to disappear. Society would thus approach the ideal of Jeffersonian democracy, the promised land of Herbert Spencer, the abolition of government. But of government only as a directing and repressive power. 
it would at the same time and in the same degree become possible for it to realize the dream of socialism. All this simplification and abrogation of the present functions of government would make possible the assumption of certain other functions which are now pressing for recognition. Government could take upon itself the transmission of messages by telegraph as well as by mail, of building and operating railroads as well as of opening and maintaining common roads. With present functions so simplified and reduced, functions such as these could be assumed without danger or strain, and would be under the supervision of public attention, which is now distracted. There would be a great and increasing surplus revenue from the taxation of land values, for material progress, which would go on with greatly accelerated rapidity, would tend constantly to increase rent. This revenue arising from the common property could be applied to the common benefit, as were the revenues of Sparta. We might not establish public tables, they would be unnecessary, but we could establish public baths, museums, libraries, gardens, lecture-rooms, music and dancing-halls, theatres, universities, technical schools, shooting-galleries, playgrounds, gymnasiums, etc., Heat, light, and motive power, as well as water, might be conducted through our streets at public expense. Our roads be lined with fruit-trees, discoverers and inventors rewarded, scientific investigations supported, and in a thousand ways the public revenues made to foster efforts for the public benefit. We should reach the ideal of the socialist, but not through government repression. Government would change its character, and would become the administration of a great cooperative society. It would become merely the agency by which the common property was administered for the common benefit. Does this seem impracticable? Consider for a moment the vast changes that would be wrought in social life by a change which would assure to labour its full reward, which would banish want and the fear of want and give to the humblest freedom to develop in natural symmetry. In thinking of the possibilities of social organization, we are apt to assume that greed is the strongest of human motives, and that systems of administration can be safely based only upon the idea that the fear of punishment is necessary to keep men honest, that selfish interests are always stronger than general interests. Nothing could be further from the truth. From whence springs this lust for gain, to gratify which men tread everything pure and noble under their feet, to which they sacrifice all the higher possibilities of life, which converts civility into a hollow pretense, patriotism into a sham, and religion into hypocrisy, which makes so much of civilized existence in Ishmaelitish warfare, of which the weapons are cunning and fraud? Does it not spring from the existence of want? Carlyle somewhere says that poverty is the hell of which the modern Englishman is most afraid. And he is right. Poverty is the open-mouthed, relentless hell which yawns beneath civilized society. And it is hell enough. The Vedas declare no truer thing than when the wise Crow Bushanda tells the eagle-bearer of Vishnu that the keenest pain is in poverty. For poverty is not merely deprivation. It means shame, degradation, the searing of the most sensitive parts of our moral and mental nature as with hot irons, the denial of the strongest impulses and the sweetest affections, the wrenching of the most vital nerves. You love your wife, you love your children, 
but would it not be easier to see them die than to see them reduced to the pinch of want in which large classes in every highly civilized community live? The strongest of animal passions is that with which we cling to life, but it is an everyday occurrence in civilized societies for men to put poison to their mouths or pistols to their heads from fear of poverty, and for one who does this there are probably a hundred who have the desire, but are restrained by instinctive shrinking, by religious considerations, or by family ties. From this hell of poverty it is but natural that men should make every effort to escape. With the impulse to self-preservation and self-gratification combine nobler feelings, and love as well as fear urges in the struggle. Many a man does a mean thing, a dishonest thing, a greedy and grasping and unjust thing, in the effort to place above want, or the fear of want, mother or wife or children. And out of this condition of things arises a public opinion which enlists, as an impelling power in the struggle to grasp and to keep, one of the strongest, perhaps with many men the very strongest, springs of human action. The desire for approbation, the feeling that urges us to win the respect, admiration, or sympathy of our fellows, is instinctive and universal. Distorted sometimes into the most abnormal manifestations, it may yet be everywhere perceived. It is potent with the veriest savage, as with the most highly cultivated member of the most polished society. It shows itself with the first gleam of intelligence, and persists to the last breath. It triumphs over the love of ease, over the sense of pain, over the dread of death. It dictates the most trivial and the most important actions. The child just beginning to toddle or to talk will make new efforts as its cunning little tricks excite attention and laughter. The dying master of the world gathers his robes around him, that he may pass away as becomes a king. Chinese mothers will deform their daughters' feet by cruel stocks. European women will sacrifice their own comfort and the comfort of their families to similar dictates of fashion. The Polynesian, that he may excite admiration by his beautiful tattoo, will hold himself still while his flesh is torn by shark's teeth. The North American Indian, tied to the stake, will bear the most fiendish tortures without a moan, and, that he may be respected and admired as a great brave, will taunt his tormentors to new cruelties. It is this that leads the forlorn hope, it is this that trims the lamp of the pale student. It is this that impels men to strive, to strain, to toil, and to die. It is this that raised the pyramids, and that fired the Ephesian dome. Now men admire what they desire. How sweet to the storm-stricken seems the safe harbour, food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, warmth to the shivering, rest to the weary, power to the weak, knowledge to him in whom the intellectual yearnings of the soul have been aroused. And thus the sting of want and the fear of want make men admire above all things the possession of riches, and to become wealthy is to become respected and admired and influential. Get money, honestly if you can, but at any rate get money. This is the lesson that society is daily and hourly dinning in the ears of its members. Men instinctively admire virtue and truth, but the sting of want and the fear of want make them even more strongly admire the rich and sympathize with the fortunate. It is well to be honest and just, and men will commend it. 
but he who by fraud and injustice gets him a million dollars will have more respect and admiration and influence, more eye-service and lip-service, if not heart-service, than he who refuses it. The one may have his reward in the future. He may know that his name is writ in the book of life, and that for him is the white robe and the palm-branch of the victor against temptation. But the other has his reward in the present. His name is writ in the list of our substantial citizens. He has the courtship of men and the flattery of women. The best pew in the church and the personal regard of the eloquent clergyman who in the name of Christ preaches the gospel of dives, and tones down into a meaningless flower of eastern speech the stern metaphor of the camel and the needle's eye. He may be a patron of arts, a Mycenaeus to men of letters, may profit by the converse of the intelligent, and be polished by the attrition of the refined. His arms may feed the poor, and help the struggling, and bring sunshine into desolate places, and noble public institutions commemorate, after he is gone, his name and his fame. It is not in the guise of a hideous monster, with horns and tail, that Satan tempts the children of men, but as an angel of light. His promises are not alone of the kingdoms of the world, but of mental and moral principalities and powers. He appeals not only to the animal appetites, but to the cravings that stir in man because he is more than an animal. Take the case of those miserable men with muckrakes, who are to be seen in every community as plainly as Bunyan saw their type in his vision, who, long after they have accumulated wealth enough to satisfy every desire, go on working, scheming, striving to add riches to riches. It was the desire to be something, nay, in many cases, the desire to do noble and generous deeds, that started them on a career of money-getting and what compels them to it long after every possible need is satisfied what urges them still with unsatisfied and ravenous greed is not merely the force of tyrannous habit but the subtler gratifications which the possession of riches gives the sense of power and influence the sense of being looked up to and respected the sense that their wealth not merely raises them above want but makes them men of mark in the community in which they live it is this that makes the rich man so loath to part with his money, so anxious to get more. Against temptations that thus appeal to the strongest impulses of our nature, the sanctions of law and the precepts of religion can effect but little, and the wonder is not that men are so self-seeking, but that they are not much more so that under present circumstances men are not more grasping, more unfaithful, more selfish than they are, proves the goodness and fruitfulness of human nature, the ceaseless flow of the perennial fountains from which its moral qualities are fed. All of us have mothers, most of us have children, and so faith and purity and unselfishness can never be utterly banished from the world, howsoever bad be social adjustments. But whatever is potent for evil may be made potent for good. The change I have proposed would destroy the conditions that distort impulses in themselves beneficent, and would transmute the forces which now tend to disintegrate society into forces which would tend to unite and purify it. Give labour a free field and its full earnings. Take for the benefit of the whole community that fund which the growth of the community creates, and want and the fear of want would be gone. The springs of production would be set free, and the enormous increase of wealth would give the poorest ample comfort. 
Men would no more worry about finding employment than they worry about finding air to breathe. They need have no more care about physical necessities than do the lilies of the field. The progress of science, the march of invention, the diffusion of knowledge would bring their benefits to all. With this abolition of want and the fear of want, the admiration of riches would decay, and men would seek the respect and approbation of their fellows in other modes than by the acquisition and display of wealth. In this way there would be brought to the management of public affairs and the administration of common funds the skill, the attention, the fidelity, and integrity that can now be secured only for private interests, and a railroad or gas-works might be operated on public account, not only more economically and efficiently than as at present under joint-stock management, but as economically and efficiently as would be possible under a single ownership. The prize of the Olympian Games, that called forth the most strenuous exertions of all Greece, was but a wreath of wild olive. For a bit of ribbon men have over and over again performed services no money could have bought. Short-sighted is the philosophy which counts on selfishness as the master motive of human action. It is blind to facts of which the world is full. It sees not the present, and reads not the past aright. If you would move men to action, to what shall you appeal? Not to their pockets, but to their patriotism. Not to selfishness, but to sympathy. Self-interest is, as it were, a mechanical force, potent, it is true, capable of large and wide results. But there is in human nature what may be likened to a chemical force, which melts and fuses and overwhelms, to which nothing seems impossible. All that a man hath will he give for his life. That is self-interest. But in loyalty to higher impulses men will give even life. It is not selfishness that enriches the annals of every people with heroes and saints. It is not selfishness that on every page of the world's history bursts out in sudden splendour of noble deeds, or sheds the soft radiance of benignant lives. It was not selfishness that turned Gautama's back to his royal home, or bade the maid of Orléans lift the sword from the altar, that held the three hundred in the pass of Thermopylae, or gathered into Winkelried's bosom the sheaf of spears, that chained Vincent de Paul to the bench of the galley, or brought little starving children during the Indian famine tottering to the relief stations with yet weaker starvelings in their arms. Call it religion, patriotism, sympathy, the enthusiasm for humanity, or the love of God. Give it what name you will. There is yet a force which overcomes and drives out selfishness, a force which is the electricity of the moral universe, a force beside which all others are weak. Everywhere that men have lived it has shown its power, and today as ever the world is full of it. To be pitied is the man who has never seen and never felt it. Look around. Among common men and women, amid the care and the struggle of daily life, in the jar of the noisy street and amid the squalor where want hides, every here and there is the darkness lighted with the tremulous play of its lambent flames. He who has not seen it has walked with shut eyes. He who looks may see, as says Plutarch, that the soul has a principle of kindness in itself, and is born to love as well as to perceive, think, or remember. 
and this force of forces that now goes to waste or assumes perverted forms we may use for the strengthening and building up and ennobling of society if we but will just as we now use physical forces that once seemed but powers of destruction all we have to do is but to give it freedom and scope the wrong that produces inequality the wrong that in the midst of abundance tortures men with want or harries them with the fear of want, that stunts them physically, degrades them intellectually, and distorts them morally, is what alone prevents harmonious social development. For all that is from the gods is full of providence. We are made for cooperation, like feet, like hands, like eyelids, like the rows of the upper and lower teeth. There are people into whose heads it never enters to conceive of any better state of society than that which now exists, who imagine that the idea that there could be a state of society in which greed would be banished, prisons stand empty, individual interests be subordinated to general interests, and no one seek to rob or to oppress his neighbour, is but the dream of impracticable dreamers, for whom these practical level-headed men, who pride themselves on recognising facts as they are, have a hearty contempt. But such men, though some of them write books, and some of them occupy the chairs of universities, and some of them stand in pulpits, do not think. If they were accustomed to dine in such eating-houses as are to be found in the lower quarters of London and Paris, where the knives and forks are chained to the table, they would deem it the natural, ineradicable disposition of man to carry off the knife and fork with which he has eaten. Take a company of well-bred men and women dining together. There is no struggling for food, no attempt on the part of any one to get more than his neighbour, no attempt to gorge or to carry off. On the contrary, each one is anxious to help his neighbour before he partakes himself, to offer to others the best rather than pick it out for himself. And should any one show the slightest disposition to prefer the gratification of his own appetite to that of the others, or in any way to act the pig or pilferer, the swift and heavy penalty of social contempt and ostracism would show how such conduct is reprobated by common opinion. All this is so common as to excite no remark, as to seem the natural state of things. Yet it is no more natural that men should not be greedy of food than that they should not be greedy of wealth. They are greedy of food when they are not assured that there will be a fair and equitable distribution which will give each enough. But when these conditions are assured, they cease to be greedy of food. And so in society, as at present constituted, men are greedy of wealth because the conditions of distribution are so unjust that instead of each being sure of enough, many are certain to be condemned to want. It is the devil-catch-the-hindmost of present social adjustments that causes the race and scramble for wealth, in which all considerations of justice, mercy, religion, and sentiment are trampled underfoot in which men forget their own souls and struggle to the very verge of the grave for what they cannot take beyond but an equitable distribution of wealth that would exempt all from the fear of want would destroy the greed of wealth just as in polite society the greed of food has been destroyed on the crowded steamers of the early california lines there was often a marked difference between the manners of the steerage and the cabin which illustrates this principle of human nature an abundance of food was provided for the steerage as for the cabin, but in the former there were no regulations which ensured efficient service, and the meals became a scramble. 
In the cabin, on the contrary, where each was allotted his place, and there was no fear that every one would not get enough, there was no such scrambling and waste as were witnessed in the steerage. The difference was not in the character of the people, but simply in this fact. The cabin passenger transferred to the steerage would participate in the greedy rush, and the steerage passenger transferred to the cabin would at once become decorous and polite. The same difference would show itself in society in general were the present unjust distribution of wealth replaced by a just distribution. Consider this existing fact of a cultivated and refined society, in which all the coarser passions are held in check, not by force, not by law, but by common opinion and the mutual desire of pleasing. If this is possible for a part of a community, it is possible for a whole community. There are states of society in which every one has to go armed, in which every one has to hold himself in readiness to defend person and property with the strong hand. If we have progressed beyond that, we may progress still further. But it may be said, to banish want and the fear of want would be to destroy the stimulus to exertion. Men would become simply idlers, and such a happy state of general comfort and content would be the death of progress. This is the old slaveholder's argument, that men can be driven to labour only with the lash. Nothing is more untrue. Want might be banished, but desire would remain. Man is the unsatisfied animal. He has but begun to explore, and the universe lies before him. Each step that he takes opens new vistas and kindles new desires. He is the constructive animal. He builds, he improves, he invents, and puts together, and the greater the thing he does, the greater the thing he wants to do. He is more than an animal. Whatever be the intelligence that breathes through nature, it is in that likeness that man is made. The steamship, driven by her throbbing engines through the sea, is in kind, though not in degree, as much a creation as the whale that swims beneath. The telescope and the microscope, what are they but added eyes which man has made for himself? The soft webs and fair colours in which our women array themselves, do they not answer to the plumage that nature gives the bird? Man must be doing something, or fancy that he is doing something, for in him throbs the creative impulse. The mere basker in the sunshine is not a natural but an abnormal man. As soon as a child can command its muscles, it will begin to make mud pies or dress a doll. Its play is but the imitation of the work of its elders. Its very destructiveness arises from the desire to be doing something, from the satisfaction of seeing itself accomplish something. There is no such thing as the pursuit of pleasure for the sake of pleasure. Our very amusements amuse only as they are or simulate the learning or the doing of something. The moment they cease to appeal either to our inquisitive or to our constructive powers, they cease to amuse. It will spoil the interest of the novel reader to be told just how the story will end. It is only the chance and the skill involved in the game that enable the card player to kill time by shuffling bits of pasteboard. The luxurious frivolities of Versailles were possible to human beings only because the king thought he was governing a kingdom and the courtiers were in pursuit of fresh honours and new pensions. People who lead what are called lives of fashion and pleasure must have some other object in view, or they would die of ennui. 
They support it only because they imagine that they are gaining position, making friends, or improving the chances of their children. Shut a man up and deny him employment, and he must either die or go mad. It is not labor in itself that is repugnant to man. It is not the natural necessity for exertion which is a curse. It is only labor which produces nothing, exertion of which he cannot see the results. To toil day after day, and yet get but the necessaries of life, this is indeed hard. It is like the infernal punishment of compelling a man to pump lest he be drowned, or to trudge on a treadmill lest he be crushed. But released from this necessity, men would but work the harder and the better, for then they would work as their inclinations led them. Then would they seem to be really doing something for themselves or for others. Was Humboldt's life an idle one? Did Franklin find no occupation when he retired from the printing business with enough to live on? Is Herbert Spencer a laggard? Did Michelangelo paint for board and clothes? The fact is that the work which improves the condition of mankind, the work which extends knowledge and increases power and enriches literature and elevates thought, is not done to secure a living. It is not the work of slaves, driven to their task either by the lash of a master or by animal necessities. It is the work of men who perform it for its own sake, and not that they may get more to eat or drink or wear or display. In a state of society where want was abolished, work of this sort would be enormously increased. I am inclined to think that the result of confiscating rent in the manner I have proposed would be to cause the organization of labor, wherever large capitals were used, to assume the cooperative form, since the more equal diffusion of wealth would unite capitalist and laborer in the same person. But whether this would be so or not is of little moment. The hard toil of routine labor would disappear. Wages would be too high and opportunities too great to compel any man to stint and starve the higher qualities of his nature, and in every avocation the brain would aid the hand. Work, even of the coarser kinds, would become a lightsome thing, and the tendency of modern production to subdivision would not involve monotony or the contraction of ability in the worker but would be relieved by short hours, by change, by the alternation of intellectual with manual occupations. There would result not only the utilization of productive forces now going to waste, not only would our present knowledge, now so imperfectly applied, be fully used, but from the mobility of labor and the mental activity which would be generated, there would result advances in the methods of production that we now cannot imagine. For, greatest of all the enormous wastes which the present constitution of society involves, is that of mental power. How infinitesimal are the forces that concur to the advance of civilization, as compared to the forces that lie latent! How few are the thinkers, the discoverers, the inventors, the organizers, as compared with the great mass of the people! Yet such men are born in plenty. It is the conditions that permit so few to develop. There are among men infinite diversities of aptitude and inclination, as there are such infinite diversities in physical structure that among a million there will not be two that cannot be told apart. But, both from observation and reflection, I am inclined to think that the differences of natural power are no greater than the differences of stature or of physical strength. 
turn to the lives of great men and see how easily they might never have been heard of. Had Caesar come of a proletarian family, had Napoleon entered the world a few years earlier, had Columbus gone to the church instead of going to sea, had Shakespeare been apprenticed to a cobbler or chimney-sweep, had Sir Isaac Newton been assigned by fate the education and the toil of an agricultural labourer, had Dr. Adam Smith been born in the coal hues, or Herbert Spencer forced to get his living as a factory operative, what would their talents have availed? But there would have been, as it will be said, other Caesars or Napoleons, Columbuses or Shakespeare's, Newtons, Smiths or Spencers. This is true, and it shows how prolific is our human nature. As the common worker is on need transformed into Queen Bee, so, when circumstances favour his development, what might otherwise pass for a common man rises into a hero or leader, discoverer or teacher, sage or saint. So widely has the sower scattered the seed, so strong is the germinative force that bids it bud and blossom. But alas, for the stony ground and the birds and the tares! For one who attains his full stature, how many are stunted and deformed! The will within us is the ultimate fact of consciousness. Yet how little have the best of us in acquirements, in position, even in character, that may be credited entirely to ourselves, how much to the influences that have moulded us! Who is there, wise, learned, discreet, or strong, who might not, were he to trace the inner history of his life, turn, like the Stoic emperor, to give thanks to the gods, that by this one and that one here and there good examples have been set him, noble thoughts have reached him, and happy opportunities opened before him? Who is there who, with his eyes about him, has reached the meridian of life, who has not sometimes echoed the thought of the pious Englishman, as the criminal passed to the gallows, but for the grace of God there go I? How little does heredity count as compared with conditions? This one, we say, is the result of a thousand years of European progress, and that one of a thousand years of Chinese petrifaction. Yet, placed an infant in the heart of China, and but for the angle of the eye or the shade of the hair, the Caucasian would grow up as those around him, using the same speech, thinking the same thoughts, exhibiting the same tastes. Change Lady Verdever in her cradle with an infant of the slums, and will the blood of a thousand earls give you a refined and cultured woman? To remove want and the fear of want, to give to all classes leisure and comfort and independence, the decencies and refinements of life, the opportunities of mental and moral development, would be like turning water into a desert. The sterile waste would clothe itself with verdure, and the barren places where life seemed banned would ere long be dappled with the shade of trees and musical with the song of birds. Talents now hidden, virtues unsuspected, would come forth to make human life richer, fuller, happier, nobler. For in these round men who are stuck into three-cornered holes, and three-cornered men who are jammed into round holes, in these men who are wasting their energies in the scramble to be rich, in these who in factories are turned into machines, or are chained by necessity to bench or plough, in these children who are growing up in squalor and vice and ignorance, are powers of the highest order, talents the most splendid. They need but the opportunity to bring them forth. Consider the possibilities of a state of society that gave that opportunity to all. 
Let imagination fill out the picture. Its colors grow too bright for words to paint. Consider the moral elevation, the intellectual activity, the social life. Consider how by a thousand actions and interactions the members of every community are linked together, and how in the present condition of things even the fortunate few who stand upon the apex of the social pyramid must suffer, though they know it not, from the want, ignorance, and degradation that are underneath. Consider these, and then say whether the change I propose would not be for the benefit of every one, even the greatest landholder. Would he not be safer of the future of his children in leaving them penniless in such a state of society than in leaving them the largest fortune in this? Did such a state of society anywhere exist, would he not buy entrance to it cheaply by giving up all his possessions? I have now traced to their source social weakness and disease. I have shown the remedy. I have covered every point and met every objection. But the problems that we have been considering, great as they are, pass into problems greater yet, into the grandest problems with which the human mind can grapple. I am about to ask the reader who has gone with me so far to go with me further, into still higher fields. But I ask him to remember that in the little space which remains of the limits to which this book must be confined, I cannot fully treat the questions which arise. I can but suggest some thoughts which may perhaps serve as hints for further thought. End of Book Nine, Chapter Four. Recording by Tim Macarios. Idiophilus.wordpress.com.